This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. And go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater, Slater's America's the greatest country in the world. Thank you for being here. I'm fired up today, to be honest. I, I just got back uh, from a wonderful event downtown San Diego. It's hot as Hades here right now, by the way. And I know I'm complaining. So uh, let me back it up. Last weekend, I was in New Orleans. New Orleans! And that is oppressive. I don't, I don't know how anyone lives there. That is, it is outrageously hot and humid there. Good night. Oh, it's gross. I'm not even talking about Bourbon Street. I'm, I just, I just mean the, the air is awful. And then uh, come back to San Diego where it's no humidity at all. And it's kind of humid here, uh, but just compared to what it normally is, pretty gross here, too. Anyway, uh, downtown. San Diego. There's an event uh, we put together called A Salute to You, the Red, White, and Blue. Red being firefighters, blue being police officers, white being our uh, paramedics. We just thought it was appropriate now with the, first of all, on the day after the 14th anniversary of September 11th, uh, but also just this perception that's been hanging around the last couple months now against our first responders, police officers especially. We just wanted to combat that here in San Diego and say, that's not us. It's not, that's, not, that's not true here. We love you. We support you. We have your back. Um, and we just want you to know that as you protect us every single day. Um, so it was a wonderful event. And it was great. The chief of police was there. The uh, fire chief was there. The lifeguard. How about this? San Diego, uh, Labor Day was last weekend, right? How many rescues do you think the San Diego lifeguards did on Labor Day weekend? How many, how many lifeguard rescues at the beaches of San Diego? If you asked me, I would say, I don't know, eight. eight. I think that's, a, that's a lot of rescues. Eight rescues. I was a lifeguard all high school and I guess just high school. Um, I think I did like one rescue. <laughs> so I don't know. Lifeguards, San Diego, busy weekend. I don't know, eight, 12 rescues. 650 there were 650 rescues over the weekend. There was 150 rescues in on one beach alone. It's called Windensea. I don't know why there were so many in that one beach, but good night. So anyway, the head of lifeguards were there. Uh, Sheriff, Cal Fire, which is the county fire, um, state fire service. Just It was really wonderful to have all these uh, leaders and leaders of men and women uh, in, in one place and to have the city uh, support them. You know, a couple months ago, we talked about the Charleston shooting on this show. But not so much about the shooting, but what happened two days after the shooting. Remember when that housewife thought it would be a good idea to uh, invite some of her Facebook friends to the foot of the Arthur Ravenel Jr. Bridge, one of the bridges in Charleston. You know, invite some friends. Let's get together. Let's pray. Let's sing some songs. Let's just come together as, as residents of this city and just be together during this difficult time. So she put it out on Facebook and, and uh, you know, the day came and... and yeah, a couple of her friends came. A couple of her Facebook friends. And so did 20,000 other people. Remember when we talked all about this? Story? I'll just give you the short of it. They're, they're, the people split up and they went on each side of the bridge and they started marching across at the same time. Singing songs, praying, holy hands, singing. It's beautiful. And they met at the middle. And the people who led 
each side were vict- uh, family members of the victims and police officers. Hand in hand as well. And they all met in the middle. It was perfect. And now it's called the Unity Bridge. So this event that I just got back from in San Diego, I, I, the reason we put it together was we wanted it to be our San Diego preemptive Unity Bridge moment. Right? So we wanted to do that before something terrible happens. Just to lift up and inspire our, our, our first responders a little bit. So I anyway, just came back from that, so I'm really excited, real fired up. It was a really wonderful, uh, wonderful morning. I mentioned September 11th. I want to tell a story from that day. I was talking with Salcedo. I, you know, <laughs> there's no shortage of stories from 14 years ago, but I want to share uh, just one. It's the story of Lucky. Lucky Penny is her name. It's been her name since she was a little girl. Her real name's Heather, but with the last name Penny, you got, are you going to go with Lucky? So Lucky was a bit of a tomboy growing up. She just grew up smelling jet fuel constantly. Her dad flew jets in Vietnam and still races them today. So she's always been around planes. She got her pilot's license when she was in college. But that wasn't going to be a career for her. She was a literature major. She wanted to be a teacher. But then Congress opened up combat aviation to women. Signed up the next day. <laughs> because she always wanted to be a fighter pilot, just like her dad. But she was never allowed, so she never considered it much, really. But now it was allowed, so that's what she was going to become. Fast forward a couple years. That Tuesday morning, 14 years ago yesterday. She was stationed at Andrews Air Force Base. And they were sitting around a briefing table when someone walked in and said a plane flew into the World Trade Center. And they thought, like, like I did, I'm sure maybe you did too, that, that it was just some nut on a Cessna. You know, a plane flew into the Empire State Building a long time ago too. So we just thought it was a Cessna or whatever. And then another plane hit, and that's when they knew it was war. Now, it's hard to believe today... But at that time, on September 11th, 2001, there were no armed aircraft standing by outside Washington, D.C. And there was no system in place to scramble these jets. Isn't that amazing? Now, today, there are at least two planes that are armed and ready at all times and a pilot never far away, but not on September 11th, 2001. Now, a third plane hit the Pentagon, and then there was word that a fourth plane was hijacked and on the way to Washington, D.C. Here's the problem. It would take an hour to arm the jets. Unarmed jets, it would take an hour to arm them, and there was no time for that. So the colonel, Mark Sasseville, he said, Lucky, you're coming with me. And they each jumped into their F-16s. Now, Lucky started to go through her pre-flight checklist, Right? I don't know what that pre-flight checklist is, but it's like when you're learning to drive. Right? You check the seatbelt on, you check the rear view mirror. Make sure. But on an, on an F-16, that normally takes half an hour. And the colonel said, what are you doing? Let's go. They took off just like that. Now, here's the thing. When they were in the air, it was confirmed that that plane was in fact hijacked and headed toward Washington, D.C., And they were ordered to take the plane down before it makes it to Washington, D.C. Do you remember remember hearing that? 
I'm going back to September 11th and the days after. I thought that was a rumor that that was ordered. But it turns out it was. Ari Fleischer, who is uh, George W. Bush's chief of staff, um, every September 11th, I think it's every, I know this September 11th, yesterday, on his Twitter feed, he tweeted everything that happened to the minute from 14 years ago. And it was sometime, sure enough, in the morning, he said the president ordered that all hijacked planes be shot down. So that wasn't a rumor. That actually happened. That was an order from the president of the United States to shoot down passenger planes. In this case, take down a passenger plane filled with 44 civilians. They don't exactly train for that. And not only that, you may be one step ahead of me. But on this F-16... There was no ammunition. There were no missiles. There was nothing to shoot the incoming 757 down with. Remember, they weren't armed and they had to go right now. There wasn't an hour to to waste. They took off without any ammunition at all. All Lucky had was her own plane. So when the president and Everyone above Lucky ordered her to do whatever it takes to take that plane down. That meant crash her plane into it. That was the only way to take that plane down. To crash her own F-16 into the 757. Those were the orders. So Lucky's thinking, all right, if I hit the back of the plane, then the plane can still glide. I'll have to hit the cockpit. And she thought, well, maybe maybe I can eject right before I hit it. But if I eject too soon and I miss, then my jet goes into the distance and might kill someone, kill someone too. So I'll have to stay in the plane. I'm going to die today. That was Lucky's realization. Imagine that. You're, you're in midair. And the order comes down to take this plane down. And you have to you realize the only way you can take it down is if you fly your plane with you in it and everyone dies. And Lucky realized that that day was going to be the last time she ever took off from a runway. Now I think it's later. Hold on. <laughs> it's 14 years. I've never heard of Lucky Penny. I would remember the story of Lucky Penny. I would remember the story of, a, of an F-16 flying into a passenger jet. What are you talking about? You're making all this up. I'm not making it up. The reason you probably have never heard of Lucky Penny is because in the end, she did not take the plane down. It was the men and women on United 93 who took it down themselves. Because United 93 was a plane full of people who, like Lucky, were willing to do anything to take that plane down before it gets to Washington, D.C. Lucky said the real heroes are the passengers on 93 who were willing to sacrifice themselves. I was just an accidental witness to history. It's true, but a very, very close witness to history
So we remember the heroes on United 93, no doubt. But if they weren't successful, then the history books would be remembering Lieutenant Lucky Penny. The pilot who was ready to go on a suicide mission to protect our capital. And I think of all, you know, we know a lot of stories about 9-11. A lot of stories of heroism, everyday heroism. Or say regular people or whatever. I think of all the stories that we don't know. We'll never know them all. And I also think of all the stories of almost heroism. People ready and prepared. But wasn't necessary in the end. I have to imagine the story of Lucky Penny's at the top of that list. One eight 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 nine hundred thirty three ninety three. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Listening to Mike Slater. Slater Crusaders 1-888-933-93. Should we go to Josh here for uh, for a quick minute? We got a second. John is in Indiana. What's going on? Or Josh, how are you, Josh? Hey, how you doing? Good, brother. Thanks for calling in. How are you? Hey, I love your show. It's fun to let you know that. Thanks, uh, Josh. I I just wanted to comment a little bit on just the whole you know nine eleven and and the obviously it's a tragic day um, you know as we remember those but. Um, I'm thinking about those that don't really remember that at all. Those that were, um, you know, I was just talking to my nephew. He's 12 years old. Yep. So just, uh, you know, he was born just a couple of years after that whole thing happened. And I was talking to him and I was, I was saying, hey, uh, so what'd you guys do for, you know, what'd you do in your classes for, you know, uh, for 9-11 on Friday? And, you know, what all happened? And they said, oh, we just, we watched a, a video about it and uh, I fell asleep. It was real boring. And I'm just... I'm just, you know, shocked. Absolutely. I just, I'm just sitting there at breakfast with him this morning with me and my wife. We're just sitting there with my nephew, and, and we're just completely shocked. At, at it. Are, are we talking about the same event here? You know, we had three, over 3,000 people die, and, and there's just a gap there between those that, that really know. And I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, how could that be boring? <laughs> boring? Well, yeah, absolutely. It's unbelievable to me. Of all the things to describe, how old is your nephew? He's 12 years old. He's going to be 13 soon. Wow. So what grade is that? That's uh, seventh grade, something like that. Do you know what what class he watched it in? He watched it in his history class. And his history teacher wasn't able to bring to life an event that happened 14 years ago? That's what I'm sad about. You know, and wow. and really, and that it's it's putting it in proper light. You know, when I I remember when I was in uh, when I was in history class and we were talking about Pearl Harbor. Mm-hmm. You know, I wasn't there. I I you know generations from that situation completely mm-hmm. removed, and yet my history teacher brought it to life for me in a way that almost brought me to tears because he would yeah. talk about all the people that were affected by it, the families, the family members of those who died, and just all kinds of things, and and. Now it's just kind of something to sort of write off in the history books, it seems like. I mean, not for a lot of people, but 
I just I, I get kind yeah. of nervous about the, the upcoming generation when you know these kinds of things happen. I, you know, I'm 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 hoping that my nephew is you know a small minority in this in this whole thing, and I'm hoping that someday he gets it a little bit more. But sure, well, I'm sure because you're his uh, uncle. So did, what what did, did you tell him anything about? Like what? What it was? Like what nine eleven really was? Or any one story you told him to try to bring it to life? Oh, I mean, I talked a little bit about the, uh, about the Ottoman Empire, but I didn't want to get too much into that kind of stuff. <laughs> I, I really just wanted to talk about the the uh, the event that took place on the day that I was talking about nine eleven two thousand one. And so I was, you know, basically just saying, okay, there were, you know, there were there were unseen hi- hijackers that that uh, overcame people that, you know, for the the. Uh, airplanes and they were trying to get they were trying to start all kinds of havoc and I, I just kind of went in just the, the super basic idea of it and basically kind of made it on more of an emotional level where it was you know these were actual people like me and you you know like it was you know imagine and I, t- I told him I said imagine if I was in that building and you know you were four or five years old and I was your dad and you re- you, you had to you, you came home from school and you realized wait where's daddy yeah. at and then mom had yeah. to tell you you know daddy's not coming home Absolutely. Or or if dad was a firefighter and could have been fine, but ran into the building. I mean, exactly. there's so many stories that, that can make that real. Josh, man, listen, I appreciate the call very much. And I'm glad you're uh, you're an uncle who's willing to teach, man. Let's appreciate that very much. Thank you, brother. Thanks for listening. Hey, um, thank you. You're, and, and you're not the only one. I, I got an email the other day from uh, a gentleman on my local show. He said, Slater, I have a family member who teaches history at a San Diego middle school and was told not to discuss 9-11 because uh, teachers make it too emotional as teachers lived through the event and it's not an emotional issue for the students as they weren't born yet unbelievable if not taught the future uh, if not taught to future leaders of our communities and nation in a history class then when some have already failed to never forget I mean gosh it is I guess I've never thought about. It. I don't know how to. I haven't thought about how to teach someone nine eleven to someone who wasn't even born yet. Because the concept that somebody—it's <laughs> so weird. Like, what do you mean you weren't born? Oh yeah, you're ten. Um, I haven't really thought about it, but I don't know. I guess if I had to bring it to life, if it was an appropriate, uh, you know, um, environment, I talk about what it would be like if you were on the hundred and fifth floor, and the plane crashed into the building underneath you. And you had no way to get out. What would you do then? Or what would you what would you be if, if you were on the plane? How would you feel if you were that firefighter who was stationed, you know, in a station a ways away, but was taking your truck into ground zero? And you could jump off that truck and go back to your family. But they didn't. They continued on. I mean, there's so many different angles where you can make this emotional, and and that's our duty. Because it was emotional. It was real. It happened. And we can't let 12-year-olds forget about it. Make it alive. Bring it alive for them. I guess now as the further more time goes on, you know, we've always said never forget, always remember. But as time goes on now, it's going to be more important to not only never forget and always remember, but to teach. Teach more people about it. And make it more alive for those who weren't alive. Mike Slater Show. Spread the word. Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio on the Blaze Radio Network.
Mike Slater. Slater Crusaders. Thanks for being here. Josh, really great phone call, sir. Thank you for listening. Thank you for uh, calling. Slater Radio on the uh, Twitter. Slater Radio, S-L-A-T-E-R, radio, one word. Uh, can I get something off my chest real quick? And then we got some other uh, important things to talk about. Oh, I do want to talk about the Iran deal a little bit. Something important to talk about with Iran. I want to talk about LeBron James. I want to talk about teaching boys to play with swords. What else we got on the list? That is some other good things. Uh, but let me get this off my chest here right quick. 23-year-old man shot in the chest. He died in the hospital. 20-year-old woman shot multiple times, pronounced dead on the scene. 23-year-old man shot and killed walking home. 20-year-old with a 2-year-old daughter shot at 1 in the morning. A 31-year-old man was shot in the head. A 22-year-old man was shot in the drive-by. A 31-year-old was shot in the stomach, pronounced dead on the scene. That is eight people shot and killed last weekend in Chicago. Think about that. Eight people. 46 injured in one weekend in one city and really within a you know a few blocks of each other in in the city. I mean that that is that is unreal. Like that didn't that make you I don't I don't it's still shock. I know every once in a while we, we share statistics like that. And every time like what are you talking about? How can that be? I, I, mean, I get sad, my heart breaks for all the families, and, and then I get mad, I get angry, and I get, I get frustrated that this continues. Especially when we're bombarded almost every day with this empty message of Black Lives Matter, when eight people killed in one weekend, mostly young people too. Eight in one weekend, we're supposed to trip all over ourselves to fix the consequences of slavery when murders like this are happening in Chicago every weekend. You know, the president was in Alaska what, a couple two weeks ago. Was it two weeks? Talking about the gravest threat to mankind. Climate change. Our governor in California, Jerry Brown, he was in the Vatican a couple weeks ago talking about climate change as well, where he said, we're talking about extinction here. So we're talking about human extinction. So human beings are going to go extinct because of climate change. Meanwhile, in Chicago, eight people dead, 46 injured over Labor Day weekend. From shootings. 46 people. Our entire country's attention, instead of ignoring that, should be focused on lifting up the people inside of our inner cities who are actually serving people and pushing for stronger families. Who are actually working to, to, to encourage fathers to be present. Who are fighting for better schools and, for, and, and investing in local economies. Right? That's the answer right there. We need to be celebrating, because the, the people are already there. We need to be celebrating the people who are investing in inner cities. Whether it's with their time, the prayer, their energy, their money. We need to be lifting those people up. That's why we highlighted the owner of that hair salon in Ferguson. Uh, she owned it, uh, she worked there for like 10 years, and just a couple years ago she became the owner. And then... Um, 
Michael Brown shooting was right outside the front of her salon. And she's been looted twice in a year. So she invests in Ferguson with her own money. And look what happens to her. And we're supposed to believe that government is the answer. Government's going to fix all that? No way. It's people like Delana Jones. They're the answer. And there are people on the ground in these cities who really want a real revolution. But it's an uphill battle. It's an uphill battle because we're told to keep our attention on the real killer in America. Carbon dioxide. (laughs) It's like, what? What are you talking about? It's so frustrating. Sorry, that's what I had to get off my chest. It's frustrating that we're told to look over here. And I know we can do two things at once, right? But we're told to look over here like this. Mass extinction. We're told to look over here. Meanwhile, uh, excuse me, uh, over here, people are getting killed now. Okay, forget about in 100 years the temperature of the planet being 0.3 degrees warmer than... Like, I'm talking now, right now, kids are being shot. And then they say, oh, you want to talk about people being shot? Let's talk about cops killing people. No. You want to know how many people uh, cops killed in Chicago last weekend? None. Zero. No cops. No cops killed any people last weekend. But 46 other people were injured in shootings. All right. I'm done ranting. Thank you for letting me get it off my chest. To prevent the emails that I will surely get. It doesn't have to be one or the other. I totally get that. It doesn't have to be one or the other like climate change and inner city shootings. Okay, we can pay attention to both. And it also doesn't have that we talked last I think last week or two weeks ago about picking teams. I'm so sick of picking teams. It's like one team's on the side of the cops and one team is on the side of uh you know, whatever. I don't even know. Like drug dealer. I don't I don't know. We, we can be for, we can say, hey, we do need some reform in our police off uh, police departments. No doubt about it. We need some real reforms. No department's perfect. But to pick out police officers as the problem, when in Chicago over the weekend, 46 people are injured in shootings, eight dead. That's just not accurate. I'm just, I'm sick of the narrative we're given. I'm sick of the narrative. Let's make a new one. Mississippi. Police pulled over a man. Mike Powers is his name. He was in a hurry to get to an appointment, so he was speeding. And the officer, who the driver said was the largest man he's ever seen, the officer walked to his car and they talked, and he began to write him a $400 ticket. And then Mike said, how are you? And I can't, I can't, even, I can't say it like that. So, quick backup. I've, t- I've told you this a million times. Uh, people always ask me like, how, how is Glenn, how's Glenn in real life? And my answer is always the most genuine person you've ever met in your life. The way that Glenn says, how are you is unlike anything I've ever heard. I've never heard anyone say it so genuinely as he does. It's like, we'll be walking down the hall 
Just like nor like nor like here in San Diego, I walk down the hall, and you're hey, how are you? Doing good? Okay, yeah, good, good. Just pleasantries, right? Glenn, you walk through the Dallas studios and you run by Glenn, and Glenn will say to someone, "How are you?" I, I can't even do it. I don't. I don't even. How, how are you? I, I I can't even fake it. And when he does it, the person who he says it to just they just they just like unload. It's just like <laughs> they tell them, here's my life story. Here's what I'm going through. Here's the tr-. because Jen uh, Glenn genuinely means it, and I imagine that's how this driver said it. Right? How are you? With all the senseless killings, are you okay? Are the officers in Mississippi okay? And it's just the way he said it just pierced the officer's heart. He was so touched. Oh, and also the the man gave the officer a bracelet with with a scripture on it. And the officer was so touched, not not by the words, because anyone can say how are you, but but just by genuine the man was, the actual concern that he had. The officer said he almost teared up, because yeah, it has been hard for officers. And the officer, in the end, ripped up the ticket. And Mike, instead, made a $200 donation to a children's home in Mississippi. Now, the lesson here is not to give things to police officers in hopes that they get you out, get you out of a ticket. That won't work. But the heart of concern, that's what matters. The genuine love and concern of our officers, that, man, that's appreciated and needed now more than any time in my recent memory. Maybe you're new. I, I don't... You may be new to the Mike Sliders. I don't know the listening habits of um, this audience quite yet. Yeah, I, don't, I don't know how people come in, come out, listen to podcasts mostly, um, how many new people are arriving every day. I'm not, I'm not quite sure, but you may be new to the Mike Slater Show, and I'm so welcome. One thing we do here, we, excuse me, one thing we don't do here is get sucked into narratives. We don't get sucked into narratives. We don't fall into feeling like we're told we should feel. Or reacting how we're told we should react, or even paying attention to stories that we're told we should pay attention to. And most importantly, I refuse to believe that we're being told the full story of who we are as Americans and who we are as human beings. And that's why when we talked to Glenn back a couple weeks ago on the radio here, I said, Glenn, we've been exploring things that are written on the human heart, things that transcend cultures, things that transcend geography things that transcend race gender age things that are just written on the human heart and those are the things we talk about on this show because yeah there's a lot of evil in the world naturally it's a fallen world but that's not who we are we're better than that we're capable of more than that always so if you're new welcome i want to take a break i want to come back tell the story of a changed man And a gesture, an offer that came from an unlikely source, to say the least. An unlikely source to an unlikely person. Great story. I love it. Got it next. one 888 Thanks for letting me get that off my chest. Mike Slater, show the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater Crusaders, how are you? Thank you for being here. I'm going to tell a quick story. Carl Fox. He has cancer, blood cancer. 
He needs uh, a bone marrow donation. And he received a letter the other day from Charles Austin. Charles said, uh, Carl, I, w- I want to donate my, uh, my bone marrow to you. And the men barely know each other. In fact, the only, they only met in, in person once, one time. And even then, they didn't even say much to each other. But Carl, the man who has cancer now, did something to Charles that changed his life. Can I read this this letter here to you real quick? I got I got a minute here, right? Let me pull it up here. Dear Dear Carl Fox, in viewing the News Observer Sunday morning, I ran across the article announcing your condition. Although you may not know me personally, my heart was touched by what I read. My name is Charles Austin. You were the district attorney during the course of my trial, where I received a 25-year sentence. I have since then given my heart to Jesus and am living in him a changed man. There's no hatred or animosity in my heart towards you or any man. I have forgiven you for the verdict I received and I am serving that time in all humility of heart. I know you are in need of a matching donor for bone marrow. I may or may not be a match, but would be willing to make the sacrifice if needed. Thank you for listening. I wish you much success in your search. My prayers be with you, Charles Austin. You got that right. Carl Fox was the district attorney in the case that ultimately sentenced Charles to 25 years in prison. And now Charles, a changed man, offered his bone marrow to the now judge. Do we have clip one here? Uh, Let's go ahead, clip one. Well, I had a lot of hate for Mr. Fox. He sent me so much time. But I come to church a lot, so I found God. I thought maybe if I could do something for someone else, I would do it, you know, I would do it. Charles says going to jail saved his life, turned his life around. He looks forward to one day being a free man. But you know what? Why wait until then to change lives? You know, right? Why wait till the end of his sentence? Now, in the end, he can't donate his bone marrow. It's against the law for inmates to donate. The risk of infectious disease is too high. But the letter inspired other people to check and see if they're a match. I love that story. You know, uh, a couple weeks ago, we talked about how courage is contagious. And what started that was the Americans, the three Americans on that train in France. So many amazing stories out of that moment. But my favorite probably is the uh, British businessman who was also on that train, whose first instinct when the gunman, when the terrorist came on and started shooting was to hide. But when he saw the Americans jump on the terrorist, he decided to join in and take the terrorists down as well. Courage is contagious. And the truth is, everything's contagious. Hate is contagious. Bitterness is contagious. Fear is contagious. But the good news is, so are the good things. Generosity and service are contagious. Charles Austin proved it. So why do I share stories like this? I share them because there's a lot more of these than what we hear all the time. <laughs> there's way more stories like this out there than the stories we hear good things like this happen more often than the bad things I truly believe it so why not hear about it why not talk about it there's more of this and also it gives us it gives me something to strive for 
You know, it's one thing to tell the Black Lives Matter protesters, you're wrong, you lost your way, you're not helping anyone. But it's another thing to say, you're doing it wrong. May I suggest you act more like Charles Alston. Here's your model. Here's our model. And we'll all be better people in a more united country if we were more like Charles Alston. Mike Slater, show the blaze. Radio Network, spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. And go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater Crusaders, America's the greatest country in the world. Thank you for being here. I hope you had a great week and uh, having a good weekend. Uh, football weekend. I'm looking up at the screen right now. Georgia Vanderbilt game. And Georgia just broke for, looks like, an 85-yard touchdown. If the guy can get back the month go out of bounds at the 12. So excuse me if I'm a little distracted to, on the right side of my uh, my vision here. I won't. I'll turn this way so I'm not distracted. Uh, I want to chat about the Iran deal. For just a couple minutes here. Um, I know a lot of uh, radio show hosts, whoever, pundits, will, will chat about the details of the bill. Right? Like, oh, how many centrifuges is Iran allowed to have? Or what the time frame is? Or 21-day notice? Or this, that, the other. None of that matters. <laughs> None of it matters at all. Um, so my take on the Iran deal is pretty simple. A deal, any deal, with anyone. In any situation. So forget about Iran, forget about foreign policy, forget about the president. Like, to- like get politics totally out of your mind. Any deal with anyone in any situation is only as good as the weakest link in the deal. So if two people make a deal and one person is an upstanding gentleman whose word is 100% rock solid and the other person is a lying snake then the deal is worthless. It, it, it doesn't matter how rock solid that one guy is. The deal doesn't exist if the other guy's a lying snake. And Iran is a bunch of lying snakes. So any, the leadership, leadership of Iran. So any deal that's made with them is only as good as their word, which is worthless. We, we are trusting untrustworthy people. We are trusting people whose survival for thousands of years has depended on deceit. We've talked with a lot of Iranian experts over the last year or so. And they all say that the only way the Persians have survived Arab conquest for thousands of years was through deceit. They pretended to follow along with the Arabs and, and this is why uh, or how they were able to maintain their identity and their history throughout Arab conquest. They're, they're masters at deceit. So we're not even playing the same game so, right, so to have conversations with uh, about what the deal says, they don't even think there is a deal. So who cares? So I read a, a report the other day, or as a CIA memo. Uh, it, it was originally confidential, but it was approved for public release in 1994. And if I can just read, i read a couple paragraphs here. Um, and, and really, the reason I share this is this is all you need to know about the Iran deal. It doesn't matter what the deal is. This this is all you need to know. George Washington, the memo reads, George Washington, American children are told, having cut down his father's favorite cherry tree, 
showed his sterling character by confessing to the deed. An Arab hearing this story not only fails to see the moral beauty of such behavior. Take a quick time out. When an American hears this story, when you hear this story, when you teach your kids this story, you think, well, that's wonderful. <laughs> look, look at he, he did something. He knew it was wrong. He stepped forward, admitted what he did to his father. What a wonderful young man. He's going to grow up to be a wonderful uh, man. And sure enough, it's George Washington, right? So we admire this act from a young boy. So the CIA says an Arab hearing this story not only fails to see the moral beauty of such behavior, but wonders why anyone would ever compromise his integrity by admitting his guilt. As to Washington's explanation that I cannot tell a lie, an Arab asks how a man could rise to the presidency if he were not suave enough to use a well-concocted falsehood as a tactic in emergency behavior. Right, so 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 someone in the Middle East would say, "Well, hold on. Why didn't he just lie? Why why didn't he figure out a way to get around it? Why didn't he figure out a way to make it seem as if the tree just fell over? Or he had nothing to do with the falling down of the tree." Let me take a quick time out, and then I'll, I'll keep going. Let me make my my final point now. It is very ethnocentric to believe that people around the world, cultures around the world, are the same as ours. It's very ethnocentric, arrogant, to believe that other people have the same values that we have, or that other people view the world the same way that we do. So when we make a deal with someone, we shake on it, and it's rock solid, ideally. Now, whether we fall through on that is a different story, but ideally, that's... That's the pinnacle. That's right. That's the model. That doesn't exist in Iran. Does not exist. It, they're to, they have a totally different value system, a totally different view of the world, a totally different way that they negotiate. So we're judging the whole thing based off of our American standards, but they're they're not. Right? They're, they're viewing at it from there. Persian standards or Iranian standards. And they're very different. Let me read one more part here from the CIA memo. For the American, uh, earning social acceptability by maintaining his honor is a matter of equating honor with personal integrity. The American manifests his integrity by un an uncompromising willingness to face objective truth and fact. Personal respect and acclaim go to him who makes a ruthless search for facts, regardless of how self-damaging the results may be. We see this all the time. Glenn Beck's great at this. Glenn Beck says, here are my personal failures. Here are the mistakes I've made. Here's the mistake I made yesterday. And we admire that. Because he has a uncompromising willingness to face objective truth and fact. And he's willing, even though it may be self-damaging, he's willing to tell the truth about his life in search of that truth. And we admire that. The CIA goes on. The Arab, however, manifests his honor and integrity 
by making a public outward impression. This is a complicated sentence. Let me skip forward. Uh, Even if facts and conditions speak to the contrary, the social veneer of non-guilt must be maintained and dominant if if he is to achieve the socially demanded face. Have you ever heard the expression save face? That's what it's about saving face. Dignity and stature are granted only to those who show themselves as flawless. The society of the Arab world has no place or respect for those whose faults or errors come to public knowledge. Blame, fault, or error accruing to an Arab personally brings him his immediate fall from social grace and a loss of dignity or face. So if the American, if you if you do something, okay, so, um, let me explain it like this. It's an honor culture, excuse me, it's a guilt culture versus a shame culture. So in America, we're a guilt-based culture, meaning if you do something wrong, you feel guilty internally, right? It's an internal feeling of guilt. I, I should have done this. I didn't. I feel guilty that I didn't do it. Or I, li- I, I did this thing. I lied about it. I feel guilty about lying about it. It's internal. And part of raising children in America is to get kids to be in touch with that, right? In touch with that inner voice, the, the, uh, your conscience, conscience, right? In the Arab world, in Iran, it's a shame-based culture. So there is no internal monitor. It's not about that. It's about your external ability to save face. It's about... Are you caught in your lie? It's not the lie that's a problem. Are you caught lying? And if you're caught lying, then you're shamed. Maybe. (laughs) But it's about external shame, not about internal guilt. I want to give you two examples. And this is also from the CIA memo. Uh, Actually, let me just give you one. This is a better one. So... The CIA says, imagine there's an American in the Middle East, living in the Middle East, and they have an Arab maid, right? And the maid knocks over a vase and breaks it. Here's what the CIA says. When the housewife comes home upon the pieces, her only minimally tactful, how did you break the vase, will be met with a startled look of surprise, a sheepish grin. And then after a few hesitating moments of agonizing embarrassment, likely the reply, oh, I didn't, I would never break anything of yours. The housewife's account of the incident to her husband would probably center on the outrage of her Western ethic. And it would say something like, oh, um, it was, it, she would say something like, after I saw the pieces, she had the nerve to stand right there and deny it to my face. But the servant... Though she truly regrets the accident and would not have done anything of the sort on purpose, has by her own lights reacted naturally and properly in repelling the immediate challenge to her dignity. Right? It's about, it's about her. Di- no, I would never break anything of yours. Yeah, but you did. It, it's, it's just, listen, if this, if this doesn't make any sense, just please just walk away with this. We're different. We're different. I'm not going to say one way is wrong or one way is right. I'm not gonna, we're going to save a value judgment for another day, which is better, which is bad, which is good. 
But for right now, it's just important to acknowledge that we are different. So when the Iranians lie, to us it's a lie. To them it's not. To them it's leadership. To them it's saving face. To them it's maintaining dignity. And we're just not operating with that wisdom. We're not operating with that understanding. We're we're trusting people who inherently can't be trusted. And maybe we could talk about this next, but we're trusting people who, when they negotiate, never stop negotiating. There's no such thing to the end of negotiations when you're dealing with people in Iran. It's just their culture. It's how it works. So big picture, we're looking at this this deal from our American ethnocentric perspective. We have to look at it from the Iranian perspective. And from the Iranian perspective, the deal doesn't even exist. But they get all the benefits of it. And any time we call them out on not following something that they agreed to, they're going to deny that they ever even agreed to it in the first place. Because they just don't have the same value system we do. I'm not saying one's better or worse. Just different. And until we acknowledge that, nothing else matters. <laughs> and I don't think we are as a country enough acknowledging that difference. one 888 I know that's a lot of stuff right there in, in a short time, but um, just, keep, just keep that generally in mind when you hear other analyses, especially analysis on the, on the specifics of the deal, because the specifics really don't matter uh, when you're dealing with um, the Iranians. It just doesn't. one 888 Mike Slater, show the plays. Radio Network, spread the word. Mike Slater. We'll continue in a moment on the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater, Slater, Slater Radio on Twitter. Uh, talking about the differences between um, uh, Arab and American cultures. I'm not going to put any value judgment on it now. That's not important right here. We can save that for another day. Um, really, I just think we as a country need to acknowledge that it's different. And when it comes to shame versus guilt, and when it comes to how to run a business negotiation, and who to trust and not trust. It's important that we acknowledge these differences. Otherwise, it doesn't. nothing in the Iran deal matters unless you acknowledge that there are differences between us and the Iranians. I want to go to Andrew, who's in uh, Florida right now. What's going on, Andrew? Hey, how you doing, man? Nice Good, to brother. be on the radio. appreciate it. Thanks for calling in, man. So can you add some insight to uh, what I tried to explain? Well, I uh, did a couple of tours in Iraq, and uh, one thing, each village that you go through has its own Malah, which is their spiritual leader. And some follow the Sharia teaching and some don't. But basically the, the big difference is here in America, women have their own rights. And you can speak directly to a woman, but there are many times upon entering a house, uh, it's it's known in that culture where the woman runs the household, but the man runs everything. So you couldn't even speak to the, the man's wife. You had to look directly at him even when addressing the wife. So, I mean, the the dichotomy is, is kind of, it's almost appalling because uh, you want to show, you know, your natural inclination is to show respect. You, sir and ma'am, and, and, and speak and look at who you're talking to, but not to do so, to speak directly to the man, 
even out in public and in the streets, when you want to talk to a woman, you have to get the attention of a man to relay the message where she can hear you say the message so that he can then look at her and translate or give her the nod of approval or disapproval. Interesting. So that was something we had a lot of problems with. But uh, wow. that's all I got, man. I love well, your let, insights. Can I, can I throw one more thing your way, perhaps? I, I was talking to a buddy of mine who went to Afghanistan a couple times. Um, and you, you spoke of the spiritual leader. What, what did you call him? There, it's called the Malah. Malah. He, he's uh, basically like the, the priest of the the village. or Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder, I wonder if your experience is the same as my buddy was telling me in Afghanistan. He said that... Any, so he's talking about lying, right? What you can get away with. He said, if the priest or whoever, the chief spiritual leader says it's okay to, to lie in that circumstance, he is the arbiter of what's okay and what's not okay. As opposed to like in America, it's just an objective, there's objective truth, right? And, and lying is wrong and there's objective truth and whatnot. But he was saying in Afghanistan and the villages, it all is based off of what the spiritual leader says is right or wrong or acceptable or not acceptable. You use analogies, and I love analogies. They're like parables. They they have mm-hmm. potent meanings. So uh, the best way I can put it is, have you ever seen the movie Book of Eli? No, I haven't. That's with uh, Will Smith, right? Uh, Denzel Washington. But okay, yeah, yep. the Yeah, the world goes through this endgame scenario, and there's only one Bible left. And he comes upon a village where this guy is in charge, and he says, if I... If I, and nobody understands but this, this man that's trying to control the village. He said, if I, if I could just have this book, then I would have the words to control the people. His goal is not to educate the people to enrich their lives. His goal is to dominate and control them. And now I'm not saying it's a nefarious intent by the malas of the spiritual leaders, but that they are the men with the Koran. They are the men the one man in that village that everything you're right goes right through him. He sets the law and he makes everything uh, okay or not okay. And from one village to the next, you might have this completely different interpretation. Like you have different sects of Christianity. It's the same thing. And that's why, you know, when we're allied with the Kurds in the North of Iraq, somewhere along the line, you go South, we're fighting against the Kurds. And it's simply because, there's so much trans it's lost in translation you absolutely yeah. never know who you're talking to and yes when you're talking about lying my goodness never go anywhere with unless you've got a battle buddy or two with you man because it is the culture of that violent society that blade culture that respect culture mm. lying to you and getting the upper hand in any deal even when we would go into the bazaars and and like buy some local goods they would always try to, well, what's the right word I'm looking for? They would always try to get that extra quarter, that extra 50 yep. cents, you know, whatever. Like haggle, like haggle up. They, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, and, and you knew you were getting, you know, a bad deal, and you could haggle really good and get great prices on this stuff in terms of the American dollar. But at whatever you settled on, he always asked for 10 cents more. Yeah. It wasn't about the 10 cents. It was about gaining that upper hand, and that's exactly what this Iran deal is. He's going to tell Obama whatever Obama wants to hear because he knows this, and he's an egomaniacal genius. He, he's, the, he's just this completely ego-driven man who really does believe himself to be some kind of demigod and thinks he has some kind of pull in the region. 
but really they're just leading him along like a dog. To they get the up, no all no to get idea. the power upper hand. Andrew, I hate we got to run, but man, thank you for your service. Thank you for your insight. Thank you for sharing it with us. Please call back again, man, and, and share some more if anything else uh, uh, strikes you. I hate we got to hit the bottom of the hour, brother. Awesome, awesome stuff. Thank you for the call. one 888 Slater Radio on Twitter as well. It's about power, and they'll do anything they can to get the upper hand on the Americans, and we gave it to them. This is Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. generation of talk radio this is mike slater slater says we're just laughing about the uh donald trump appearance on fallon last night the, the skit they did uh together is very very good i didn't get to, i haven't watched the full interview yet the actual interview but the part i did see wasn't that far off from the skit uh but the skit's very funny and we just put it on our facebook page you can check it out there you search for the mike slater show on facebook um maybe we can talk about trump a little later actually i was on fox news thursday morning I think it was Thursday, talking about Bobby Jindal's attack speech on uh, on Trump. So maybe we can chat about that a little later. But I, I would like to make the prediction right now. Are you gentlemen uh, prepared for this? Uh, please record this. You guys, if you can just take this segment right here. Not the segment. Just take this one line and just save it away somewhere in the computer for when it happens. And I'll be uh, super genius. Donald Trump will be the presidential nominee. And his vice president... Oh, you're not even ready. You're not even ready. I can tell you just, you weren't even emotionally prepared for the truth that is about to be given. Donald Trump will be the presidential nominee and his vice president will be Mark Cuban. There you have it. I think he's uh, uh, Trump is speaking in uh, Dallas at American Airlines Arena. I don't know if it's next week or the weekend after. Maybe the weekend after because the debate's next week. Um, but of course, American Airlines Arena, Dallas Mavericks, Mark Cuban owns the team. So Mark Cuban, I'm sure, will give the opening speech and introduce him. So you'll see both of them on stage together, and that will be the beginning of uh, the poll polling of Donald Trump and Mark Cuban as the ticket. You heard it here first. Uh, let's chat about another athlete, LeBron James. LeBron James this weekend, last week, did what unions should be doing. If unions want, private unions, want to continue to exist, they need to get their act together. Do you know there are three times as many union members in the post office than in the entire auto industry in the United States of America? (laughs) <laughs> Think about it. Three times as many union members in the post office than the entire auto industry. Now, part of the reason is the unions have driven car manufacturing south. Tennessee, Kentucky, Texas, Alabama, where they're not union. And actually, the employees in these southern states don't want to be. Last year, I think it was last year, there was a big vote of the Volkswagen employees in Chattanooga. 
and uh, to go union. And the Volkswagen Volkswagen wanted them to go vote yes to go union. Volks the company wanted them to be union, and the employees voted no. So anyway, there's there are very few private union employees anymore, and it's because the union leadership has taken their members for granted for far too long. So LeBron James is doing what unions need to do. So LeBron started a, a program where adults, and this is an extension to other programs he started in the past, uh, but the latest one is it's a program where adults can earn their GED, their high school diploma. And his program covers the class fees, the test fees, uh, provides free bus passes, and uh, tablet computers as well. And then you get additional prizes for, for uh, high grades and stuff. This program from LeBron James, I forget what it's called, will be infinitely better than any welfare program that you could give adults who don't have a high school degree. I mean, the poverty rate of people who don't have high school degree is huge. So the way to solve that is not to just give them more money so they're not in poverty anymore or whatever to make their poverty more comfortable. The solution is to get them a high school degree. And LeBron James provided that for them, right? It can open their door. Once the door is open, now they can work and earn more experience and rise the ranks. This is what unions need to be doing. If the unions were genuinely, I'm not even going to say genuinely interested, I'm going to say if the unions want to continue to survive in the private sector, they need to do more things to serve their union members and would-be union members. Let me give you an example. The minimum wage. We all know, we don't need to go through it again here. We know that the minimum wage hurts people who are making the minimum wage currently the most. We know it hurts low-income and low-skill people the most. Unemployment rate always goes up when the minimum wage goes up, every single time. If the unions were truly interested in serving people who are currently on the minimum wage, they would not be fighting for a higher minimum wage. They would be helping those people earn higher degrees or help pay for technical training so that they have more skills. We all know that tablets are going to replace fast food workers. I, I think I said last year within five years. So I'll, I'll say within four years, there will be no more fast food restaurant employees anymore. None you see. You will walk in. You will see only a tablet. You will order on your tablet. You may not even see people in the back kitchen. I don't even think there will be people working in the back kitchen. That will probably be done by machines too. So there will be almost no people working in a fast food restaurant within four years. So all those people who are on minimum wage are now going to be making zero. So instead of pushing for a $15 minimum wage, which will only hasten this process, unions should say, hey, fast food workers, join our union. Join our union and we will help you get technical training so that you can be the people making the tablet computers. We'll take you from the person who's asking, would you like fries with that? And make it so you're the person who's doing the computer software programming. So that the iPad can say, would you like fries with that? And you'll wake, make way more money doing this than you would ever dream of doing what you're doing now. That's what unions need to be doing. Making it easier for people to earn more money by improving their skills. This is why I'm for right-to-work states. Because union leadership has for far too long taken people for granted. 
Let me back it up for, for a second here. We, we have to uh, find a new way to frame old arguments for pretty much everything because the old way just hasn't been effective. So I, I am the most guilty of for how many years have I been doing radio? Eight years? Of saying we need to uh, we need right to work to destroy the unions, right? We, we I, oh man, I, I'm very anti-union. So I'll, I'll say we need right to work so that people don't have to join the unions anymore, and we can destroy the unions. And whenever I say that, I've been saying it for eight years. It makes people defensive because people have been trained to love the union and think that the unions have given us everything that we have, like work weekends and forty-hour all that stuff. We've been trained to think that all good things that have happened to the American workers because of the union, which is 100% not true. Unions did not create the weekend. They did not create the 40-hour work week. But people believe it. So instead of trying to fight that with people who believe it, let's appeal to it. So it goes something like this. Hey, uh, union person or union supporting person, do you want stronger unions? Uh, Heck yeah, I do. Do you want unions who do more for their members? Absolutely. Do you want union leadership who spends more time and energy on improving the lives of their members? I do too. That's why I support right to work states. That's why I don't support forced unionization. Because if there's forced unionization, union leadership takes their members for granted. Take them for granted and don't serve them like they otherwise could. If a union leadership has to convince people to join the union, well, then they're going to work harder to serve the members. So if you want union leadership that does more for workers than ever before, you need to join us in in fighting for right-to-work states. You need to join us in empowering union members over union leadership. So I now support right-to-work states, not to destroy unions, but to make unions more, uh, what's the word, more responsive to union members. In a way, I support right-to-work to strengthen unions because it now requires the unions to get their act together and actually fight for the union members and not for their own leader, their own, their own uh, self-interest, their own leader's self-interest. Does that make sense? It's huge. I mean, that's a game changer. If we can properly make that argument to people, that is a game changer. one 900 Let me make one more example here. You know, and let me, let me, I'll paint this narrative here, which is a broad brush, but it'll make sense. In the past, the rich fat cat owners had all the power over the little worker, right? So people took that power from the business owners and gave it to the union leaders. And now the union leaders have power over the little worker. So in the end, the little poor defenseless worker still is under someone's thumb. I want to empower them. 
I want the employees to have the upper hand. And the only way to do that, it's twofold. First, have a thriving economy where an employee can say, hey, listen, boss, if you don't do this for me and if you don't do this for us, then we're leaving to that other company over there because that other company is hiring and growing and will serve us more and treat us better. So thriving economies give employees the upper hand over the employer. And a right to work gives the union member the upper hand over the union bosses because the union bosses have to serve the members or else they're not going to keep joining. That's how you really empower the worker. Because everyone, all the union, not all, but most of the union supporting people, they'll say they're for the worker, they're for the little guy, but they're not. In the end, it's it's for the, or they may, I'm not going to judge their intent, their motives, right? Their intent is probably to help the little guy. But in the end, they're just helping the union leadership. They're making the union leadership richer and richer. And and what's different than that, really, than the boss getting richer and richer? I want the employee to be empowered. I want the employees to get richer and richer. And the way to do that, right to work and a thriving economy. That's how we fight for the little guy. For the working American. For you. 1-888-900-3393. Mike Slater Show. The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Toby said a Trump Cuban ticket would increase voter turnout. Sure would. <laughs> just wait and see. Um, just talking about how to how to frame our argument in a way that can uh, make people not defensive. Actually, you know what? That ties in nicely to what we talked about on Fox News on Thursday with Bobby Jindal going after Donald Trump. We'll do that in the next segment. Um, but I want to appeal to people's interests. I don't want to conflict with them. I don't want to argue against them. I don't want people. It's hard to get people to change their um, opinions like that. So if we appeal to their values, then we can uh, convince people just the same. It's the same thing with immigration. I know we were just talking about it with unions, but it's the same with immigration. You know who should be opposed to illegal immigration? The left. People on the left. It's so bizarre. I only got two minutes here. I'll go quick. Illegal immigration. High levels of low-skilled immigrants are good for wealthy Americans and bad for poor Americans. So the left, who fight two moral battles, there's a battle against the, the, the evil rich, right? the greedy rich, and there's a battle to lift up the poor. Okay. That's right. Income inequality. That's all we hear about is income inequality, right? The rich are too rich. The poor are too poor. We, we vote Democrat and we'll solve that problem. Even though it's only getting worse. Illegal immigration is good for the rich, bad for the poor. It makes the rich richer. It makes the poor poor. So what are you doing? <laughs> it's so weird. Liberals and progressives should be the most. They, they, should be the, they should be the ones building the wall. They should be fighting against illegal immigration. Now, in the end, the reason Democrats don't do anything is because they get votes. 
right? Which reveals the truth. Democrats aren't really against rich people. They're for rich people. Hillary's the queen of money from Wall Street. No one even comes close. And the Democrats aren't supporting poor people. They're raising dependent voters. They're not for empowering people. So this is why Democrats are for illegal immigration in the end. It's good for them because it makes the rich richer and it makes the poor poor. It makes the rich be able to give them more money for their reelection and it makes the poor more dependent on the government uh, to vote for them for reelection as well. So that's why in the end they're for illegal immigration. But if they were truly for the things they say they're for, then they would be the most against illegal immigration. So if we as conservatives, if we can't make the argument to the average person that illegal immigration makes the rich richer and the poor poorer, and it makes income inequality worse, I mean, that, that's pretty basic stuff there. And then, if we can convince these immigrants to vote for conservatives, then you'll never see a wall built so fast in all your life. Hillary Clinton will go and build that wall personally as soon as the tide turns and these immigrants vote for conservatives, as really they should do too. We'll chat about Trump coming up next. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. And go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. America's the greatest country in the world. Thank you for being here. Uh, I said we're going to talk about Trump in the next segment. That would be this segment. But if you don't mind, I'd like to to save it to the end of the hour. Because I'd like to to share a a couple other things here that I think are more important. I forget what even started this, really. But a couple days ago on my local show here in San Diego... We had three more guys. This time men. Usually, I think we've had three or four women call in to my local show and tell their abortion story. The other day, we had three men call in and share their story, including one gentleman who got his girlfriend pregnant. She never told him. Had an abortion without telling him. And he's thought about that baby every single day for the last, you know, whatever, 30 years. And, and just really just quick time out. The fact that people are driving and he was on the radio just bawling. Oh, we had another gentleman who uh, he and his girlfriend got pregnant. They decided to have the, uh, leave the baby up for uh, adoption. And they got in touch with each other another 30 years later. And he was talking all about uh, the reunion She's a, an executive now, and she's doing amazing, and she adopted another kid, and it's just a beautiful, beautiful story. He's crying on the radio, talking about the first time they saw each other and all that. And just the fact that these men are driving down the road, listening to the radio, and they, they said to themselves, I feel so strongly about this. I must pick up the phone and talk on the radio and share with all of San Diego, in this case, or if you call into the blaze, you're starting the whole country. And I must st- share the story of the biggest regret of my life. I must tell everyone. I've never told anyone. 
but I must tell everyone. Or in, in uh, Randy's case, um, the biggest redemption story of my life, like giving my baby up for adoption and then being able to, to see her again 30 years later. I'm going to tell this story and I'm going to cry on the radio because it's that important. And I'm just so grateful that people know that this is a comfortable place to share stories. And I hope you feel the same way. I remember what time what <laughs> I remember what it was. Uh, I got riled up talking about the role of men in this abortion topic. Riled up about how the role of men is to protect. Men protect children, their own and other children. And we read the story of the man who was pro-choice. And the reason he was pro-choice is because he was a man. And he's like, well, I'm I'm not supposed to say I'm not. It's a woman's choice. I'm not supposed to have anything to do with this whole topic. And it was his wife who said, you're a coward. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? Women know, especially wives, know exactly the thing to say. They can just crush you. You are a coward. She said, these are babies that are being killed, millions of them. And you need to use your voice to protect them. That's what a man does. He protects children. His own children and other children. That's what it means to be a man. I'll never forget that. That that, that article, the man wrote the article. That is so powerful to me. I want to expand on that for a second. A couple years ago. uh, uh, what, What part? I want to expand on the part about being a protector. Men being protectors. A couple years ago. A uh woman had a nice family come to her house. Uh, she, this woman was a nanny. I don't know if that's the politically correct term that we can still use. I don't, I don't know what the PC term would be for nanny, but it sounds like nanny should be. If I mean, there's so many things that you're not allowed to say anymore. You're not allowed to say what well, like a uh, stewardess, right? So if you're not allowed to say stewardess, I can't imagine you're allowed to say nanny. So I don't know. home, home child care specialist, whatever. Nanny had a family come over to her house. To meet them for the first time, to see the family wanted to see if they were gonna leave their two kids with, with this nanny uh, every day. So uh, the parents went to the nanny's house, and the family had a four-year-old girl and a six-year-old boy. And the adults talked, and the, the two kids ran off and explored the home. And they quickly discovered a big box full of toys. And within a minute, the little girl found the baby doll. And she sat down on the ground and she put the doll to bed. And in an equally short amount of time, the boy found a smaller box full of toy weapons. And before the, the, the would-be nanny said, Oh, honey, don't touch. Before she could get that out, the boy grabbed two swords, one in each hand, and he swung them around like a natural, and he goes, yeah! <laughs> and he had the swords raised above his head, and his eyes were on fire, and he was the happiest boy in the world. And the nanny looked over at the parents to see what their reaction would be. Right? Would they be horrified or outraged or disgusted, or would they just grab their kids and run home as quickly as possible? She looked at the dad, and he goes... Well, there goes that. That refers to their no weapons policy in their home. 
first the first sword that this boy ever saw, he's swinging around like he's He-Man. <laughs> the first one ever. It reminds me of a story my mom always tells. So my mom, in case you don't know, is a huge Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton supporter. She is as progressive as they come. She thinks Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton hung the moon. Uh, don't 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 ask. I don't know why. Um, and yes, we've tried, but it just you can't even. So she is rabidly anti-gun, and she wanted to raise. Her boy, which was not me, it was my older brother, was the firstborn. She wanted to raise her boy to, to stay away from God, like not to rid rid guns from his existence. One day for lunch, he was what four years old. My mom makes my brother a PB and J sandwich. My brother takes the sandwich. Takes three bites. Bites it in the shape of a gun. Picks it up, points it at my mom, and goes, pew, pew. My mom said she about had a heart attack. (laughs) She about died right there. Tried to keep him away from guns. A gun-free zone. And here's my brother, four years old, biting a PB&J sandwich into the shape of a gun and shooting my mom with it. Okay, so <laughs> it's just the way it goes. So, so back to this nanny. She looked at the parents to see what their reaction would be, and and again, it was almost of relief. So they had a conversation. They decided that not only was it okay if boys want to swing sticks around, because that doesn't mean he's going to grow up to be a murderer. Not only is it okay, but there's a place for fighting boys in the world. We need there to be a place. If a boy, if a boy wants to pick up a stick, he must be allowed. He needs to learn that a stick can be a powerful weapon. And he needs to learn that the world needs men who know how to use their weapons. If I can read this from, um, from this mom here. Boys who are never allowed to be wild... Are bo- oh, this is so good. Boys who are never allowed to be wild are boys who never learn how to control that wildness. Boys who are not allowed to whack and be whacked with sticks never learn what fighting is like. And what's so bad about that? Well, they may end up hitting someone weak with no idea how much it hurts to be hit. Or they may end up standing by while the strong go after the weak and have no idea that it's their job to put a stop to it. Either way, the weak suffer. The whole world suffers. Don't banish fighting. Banish cruelty. Love that. We have become so screwed up in our culture where we, we, we want everyone to be gentle. Right? <laughs> right? We, we've, we've come to this belief in our culture that when we're raising boys, you must raise them to be quiet, passive, metrosexual nymphs. Or, or... A savaging beast who destroys anything in its path. And that's absurd. Those are absurd extremes. We need to raise boys who are meek. Meek. Meek doesn't mean weak. Meek 
M-E-E-K, means strength under control. Weak means weak. (laughs) And when someone says, just for the record, when someone says, what would Jesus do? Just know that fashioning a whip and overturning tables in a temple is within the realm of possibility. He was meek, strength under control, used for a righteous purpose. And we are going to rue the day when these men no longer exist. Now, they do exist, of course. They do exist, and we know that they should. We know it's important. We know it's right. We know deep down in our souls that the boy goes down and the girl goes free. We just know that. Now, whether again, whether we live that or not, whether we recognize it is a different story, but we know it, right? Like in the movie, the Titanic, no one has ever said, you know, Rose really should have been the one floating in the water while Leonardo DiCaprio floated on the piece of wood. Never. No one has ever. Now, many people have suggested that they both could have fit on that piece of wood, but that's a different story. No one's ever said the man really should have been the one who's floating and the woman should have frozen to death and died. When there was the theater shooting and the boyfriends, boyfriends jump on top of their girlfriends and they get shot and killed. No one says, but equality. The girlfriends should have jumped on the boyfriends and protected the boyfriends. Please. We know what's right. We know the beautiful design. Everyone does. Let me share one more story. The third gentleman who called into my local show the other day, he had a fling one summer, went back to college and was in his frat house and he got a note. He got a letter from the girl he had a fling with and he read the letter aloud to imagine, imagine this scene, all the frat bros sitting around the room with this guy reading this letter and the letter starts off saying, She's pregnant. And he's, he's reading this letter aloud for the very first time. And all the guys in the room are like, oh, man, it's awesome. Like, congratulate. That's so cool. And then he keeps reading. And by the end of the letter, she says, I had an abortion. And the room went silent. College men, college brutes, frat bros. And the room goes silent. And that man said he'll never forget it. And and the reason the room went silent is because the killing of that baby was counter to the design of men. Killing of that baby is was counter to their design as men. And the silence that they, they showed was helplessness. Because the design of men is to protect. Again, do we always live up to that? Of course not. But that's the design. And it's our choice whether or not we line up to it or not. And if we don't, it's to our own peril. I share all this because Target may no longer be uh, uh, defining boys' uh, toys as boys' toys or girls' toys. And there may be gender-neutral bathrooms because it's a crazy world we live in. But don't fall for it. Raise boys to be defenders of the weak and vulnerable. I don't have any kids yet, but I'm telling you, when we have a boy, if we have a boy, that's what, the Sl- that's what I'm going to tell them the Slaters do. You know what the Slaters do? We protect the weak. Always. We protect the weak. And if you teach that to a boy, they're going to go to college and they're going to see a group of pseudo-men hurting a woman. And if we teach a boy to use sticks and how to use sticks and when to use sticks, 
we're sure going to be glad that we let them use sticks when they were kids. And we're sure going to be glad that we let them find out what sticks can do. And we're sure going to be glad that we told them what sticks are for. Because my son is going to be the one that goes down as the girl goes free. Because that's just how it works. one 3393 Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on The Blaze Radio Network. Just got it. <laughs> I heard a dad joke yesterday. Gentlemen, how many tickles does it take to make an octopus laugh? Any ideas? How many tickles does it take to make an octopus laugh? Ten tickles. <laughs> Ten. Ten tickles. Tentacles? Tentacles? No? All right, fine. Uh, I want to We only got four minutes. I'll come back with Donald Trump. I promise. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. My wife got it right. Nailed it. Uh, <laughs> tentacles. You get it, right? Tentac- All right. Uh, I want to share as many quotes as I can. I, I got three here. Maybe we'll only get to one or two. Maybe I'll share some more dad jokes in a second um, about this topic on raising boys, boys to be men. I like this one. This is uh, J.K. Uh, excuse me, G.K. J.K. G.K. Chesterton. Uh, G.K. is a, a British fellow from the 1900s. He was a Christian, but he, but he wrote a lot of uh, fantasy and detective fiction. And I love this quote right here. He says, "Fairy tales are not responsible." for producing fear in children. Fairy tales do not give the child the idea of the evil or the ugly. That's in the child already because it's in the world already. Fairy tales do not give the child his first idea of the boogeyman. What fairy tales give the child is the first clear idea of the possible defeat of the boogeyman. The baby has known the dragon intimately ever since he had an imagination. What the fairy tale provides for him is a St. George to kill the dragon. Exactly what the fairy tale does is this. It accustoms him, the child, for a series of clear pictures to the idea that these limitless terrors had a limit. And that these shapeless enemies have enemies in the nights of God. That there is something in the universe more mythical than darkness and stronger than fear. Isn't that awesome. So, in short, the purpose of fairy tales is not to introduce evil into the world. It's to it's because evil's already there. It's to inspire kids to the fact that the evil can be overcome. I'll share one more. Stu Weber, uh, pastor in Oregon. Uh, he was special our army special forces in Vietnam. Uh, just speaking about protector. 
the concept of being a protector, what that means. I love this quote. He said, the heart of the warrior is a protective heart. The warrior shields, defends, stands between and guards. By warrior, I do not mean one who loves war or draws sadistic pleasure from fighting or bloodshed. There's a difference between a warrior and a brute. A warrior is a protector. And men stand tallest when they are protecting and defending. Slater, why does any of this matter? You're being super dramatic here. You're kind of a downer. Talking about dragons and warriors. The reason why is because I feel like men are being told to sit down. And we're told to follow along. And we're told to keep quiet. And with abortion, we're told that you're not even allowed to have a say at all. <laughs> you're literally, this is a woman's issue. You're not even invited to participate at all in this segment of, of life. And I just totally reject that. Our families need men. Our country needs men. It's an old Spartan saying that you're only, we are only, the country is only as strong as the virtues of our inhabitants. We're only as strong as the virtue of our inhabitants. That is is an active choice that is to be made every day. And I know you're making it. I was on Fox News on Thursday. We'll talk about that and Donald Trump next. Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio on the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater is on. Slater Crusaders, thanks for being here. So on Thursday, we were on Fox News. Uh, run about, well, here's, <laughs> here's what happened. We've been on Fox News, I don't know, maybe 30 times. And I was on like a month ago. And I got an email and they're like, hey, we, we want you on every week. I said, oh, that's awesome. I said, how about, uh, they said, let, me, let us know what days you can't. We'll put you on the schedule. And I said, oh, it's wonderful. Thanks. How about every Monday? I'll do it every Monday. And they wrote back, oh, we can't do Mondays. How about three and a half weeks from now? And I was like, oh, whoa, like that was just a starting point. Like <laughs> I just, I, like we could do Tuesdays too. I, I was just throwing out Mondays, but I was like, ah, whatever. So that's why I was on last uh, Thursday. That was the three and a half weeks later. And uh, they said, now we want you on every week. You said you can do Mondays. But now I'm like, well, I don't care. I don't care. I'll do, what, I'll do whatever you want. I'm free. I, I don't have a family. I don't have any kids. I can do whatever, <laughs> do whatever you want. So anyway, maybe we'll be on more more uh, once a week. Who knows? But it will be uh, usually at 7, well, my time, 7.30, 7.20 to 7.40 Pacific. So 10.30 uh, if, you're, if you're watching Fox News around them. Anywho, so we were on Thursday and uh, we were talking about Bobby Jindal's attack on uh, Trump. So Bobby Jindal, mayor of Louisiana, mayor, governor of Louisiana, he's polling somewhere between 0.00 and 0.30%, like somewhere, somewhere hovering around. So he needed to try something, and I'm sure he thought, well, you know what, what the heck. Uh, let's play a little bit of uh, his attack on Trump. I know you got a couple clips, man. Just uh, play, play them all. Donald Trump is for Donald Trump. 
He believes in nothing other than himself. Look, he's not a liberal. He's not a moderate. He's not a conservative. He's not a Democrat. He's not a Republican. He's not an independent. Donald Trump is for Donald Trump. He's not for anything. He's not against anything. Issues don't mean anything to him. Policies, ideals are not important to him. He is for Donald. Donald Trump is a narcissist and he's an egomaniac. These are serious times for our country. The Democrats have practically gift-wrapped this election force. The whole thing is set up for us to win, and now we are flirting with nominating a non-serious, unstable, substance-free candidate. We cannot send this narcissist. We cannot nominate this egomaniac. Nominating Donald Trump is a certain way for us to ruin our opportunity to make America great again. Look, the silly summer season is over. It's time to get serious about saving our country. It's time to send Donald Trump back to reality TV. It's time to tell him, look, you've been great. You've been great for ratings. It's been great fun. You've been almost as good as Don Rickles. The show's been a blast. If let's make America great again. It starts by firing Donald Trump. Wow. All right. So uh, here's the problem with that. I don't, I don't even know. I haven't seen any polls if that helps Jindal at all. I don't Here's the problem, though. Attacking Trump as not serious is a terrible mistake. It was like a 10-minute speech, and he used that maybe three times. He said Trump is not serious. It was probably even a couple more than that. It is a fatal mistake for people to say, for pundits to say, especially other candidates, to say that Trump is not serious. Here's why. And this is what I said on, on TV. People get defensive. People get defensive. If you're a Trump supporter and I say Trump isn't a serious candidate, then all Trump supporters are going to go, oh, really? Oh, you say he's not a serious candidate? All right, then. I'll show you how serious of a candidate he is. And also, it, it creates this perception that, like, oh, from the Trump supporters, like, oh, who are you, Bobby Jindal, to tell me who is serious and who is not? And that just makes Bobby Jindal look establishment, and that's the kiss of death. And it's just, it's not, it's not helpful. It's not, it's not wise. If I say Trump isn't a serious candidate, then it's as if I'm saying you're not a serious person. And when Jindal says that Trump is a sideshow or a carnival act, it sounds like, to Trump supporters, Bobby Jindal's calling you a sideshow or a carnival act. And that's obviously not going to go over very well. And then the Trump supporters are just going to become more entrenched in their support for Trump, even if you think it's irrational support. There's not a single Trump supporter who watched the Bobby Jindal speech and said, you know what? Huh. He's right. Donald Trump is a clown. (laughs) <laughs> not a chance. Everyone who, all the Trump supporters who watched in said, no, Bobby, you're the clown. Go back to India. Or whatever. Play your own game. Or, or, the old adage, and, I, and I'm surprised that more candidates haven't done this, to be honest. If you can't beat them, join them. Join them. Why aren't you joining them? That's why it was a good move for Ted Cruz to speak with Donald Trump or on the same stage with Donald Trump. Or I think Cruz went first and Trump went next, whatever, uh, at the anti-Iran nuke rally on Tuesday or Wednesday. 
Why get on Trump's bad side? What, like, what, what good does that do? Play along. Play along. Saddle up. Join forces. And then when the moment comes to strike, you can do that. But don't attack Trump now. You're just going to go the way of Rick Perry or Rand Paul or Lindsey Graham. All those guys have tried the same thing. They've all tried to take out Donald Trump. And here's the other thing. My wife is so good at getting down to the heart of, of things. She can just whittle away everything and, and just get down to the core of every subject. And I, I asked her after I was on TV, I, should, I wish I could have called her in between. But uh, I said, hey, what do you think of, of what Jindal did? And she said, well, for 10 minutes, he just attacked Trump. So basically, he just did what he's critical of Trump for doing. Attacking people. Which leads to my number one piece of advice, and it's been from the beginning. All the other candidates, stop trying to out-Trump Trump. He's better at it than you are. You'll never out-Trump Trump. And really, I think your best thing to do is to, to stop trying to take him down and join him. Join him. Ride the wave. And then the time will come. But not now. Can I say one last Trump thing here? Um, our main point, whenever we analyze Donald Trump, my my number one calling, like just please understand that he knows exactly what he's doing. He is not a clown. He knows exactly. You may not agree with everything, but he knows exactly what he's doing. Everything is calculated. As we've said a million times, he's not running a political campaign. He's running a business negotiation. And he's using his uh, tactics from the art of the deal in 1987 to run this campaign. That's why no one has any idea what he's doing because he's playing a completely different game than everyone else and a different game than has ever been played before. He literally wrote the book on negotiating. So of course he's going to use those same tactics here. And we said a few weeks ago, that he uh, tested out an attack on Jeb Bush. And he tested it out, and, and we said, you're going to hear a lot more of it, and have you ever. The, the attack on Jeb Bush was calling him low energy. Low energy. And he tested it a few weeks ago, and now it's just nonstop. Uh, and Jeb's response, like Trump is so in his head. Uh, Jeb's response the day or two later was, uh, oh, Trump calls me low energy. That couldn't be further from the truth. I have a, a what was it? It was something like, uh, I have a uh, uh, physical therapy rehab regime or, or workout regime or something. It's like, what? That's your response? And then Jeb was on Colbert the other day, and uh, Colbert asked him about the use of the word Jeb on bumper stickers and stuff. And, and it's Jeb with an exclamation point. And you know what Jeb's response was? Colbert was like, why do you have an exclamation point? You know what he said? He said, it connotates excitement. Oh, that is so pathetic. And everyone cracked up. Everyone cracked up because they know he's droopy dog. And Trump just made it painfully off and made it so people can, everyone knows he's droopy dog when they, they feel it. But Trump was able to articulate it and help everyone else articulate it very quickly. Jeb is low energy. And he did the same thing with Ben Carson. But he did it a little differently. He he said Ben he used the one of the worst attacks on Ben Carson that you could possibly think of. 
can we can we play clip three here? Do we have time for it? No, okay, here's the deal. I want to play this clip here. It's like a minute and a half. This is Donald Trump talking about Jeb Bush. Listen to the things he says about Ben Carson. None of these things are the actual attack on Ben Carson. These are just things that, that Donald Trump is saying. After the, I would play this here, I'm going to tell you the thing that he said about Ben Carson that's way worse than anything he says here. Ben Carson, you're talking about his faith. Excuse me, Chris. Please. Go back and look at his past. Go back and look at his views on abortion and see where he stands. You talk about abortion. I mean, go back and look at his views on abortion. Where Now, all of a sudden, he gets on very low-key. I mean, frankly, he looks like he makes Bush look like the Energizer Bunny. He's very low-key. He's got a lot Strong of donors, words. a lot of people pushing him. But Ben Carson, you look at his faith, and I think you're not going to find so much. And you look at his views on abortion which were horrendous and that's i think why i'm leading with all of the evangelicals i'm as you know in your poll number one i'm leading ben carson by a lot you know you said oh ben carson surging well i'm almost double his numbers oh absolutely i'm saying he came out of nowhere is all i'm saying he's not a big celebrity you know people didn't know about him he doesn't get anywhere near the attention that you get chris very chris i only bring it up because i saw him hitting me yesterday he's questioning my faith let me ask you something he definitely is questioning your faith great believer in the bible he's definitely questioning your faith chris who is he to question my faith when i am you know i mean he doesn't even know me i've Mm. met him a few times but i don't know ben carson he was a doctor, perhaps a, you know an okay doctor. By the way, you can check that out too. We are not talking about a great. He, he was, was an okay doctor. He was. A, he I don't was know about okay fine. doctor. You know, he was the he first was man to separate conjoined twins. Because he's you know. a doctor and he hired one nurse, he's going to end up being the president of the United States. But for him to criticize me on my faith is absolutely, and for him to. Read from the Bible. We can, we can stop it there. So, so, there he, so out of all those things, he, there, that, those weren't even the worst. First of all, calling him an okay doctor, that's ridiculous. Ben Carson was the director of pediatric neurosurgery at Johns Hopkins at the age of 33. <laughs> right? he, he led a team of 70 doctors. 70. During a 22-hour surgery to separate conjoined twins at the head. He, he's done surgeries on babies who are still in the womb. An okay doctor. Here's the deal, though. None of those things will stick. Donald Trump threw an insult at, at Ben Carson that will stick more than anything you just heard right there, and I'll tell you what it is next. Mike Slater, show the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. On the Blaze Radio Network. This is Mike Slater. Slater Crusaders, I got three minutes. So Trump called Ben Carson an okay doctor. But that's not the worst attack. That's not the one that's going to stick. The worst thing that Donald Trump could call Ben Carson, and he did. Well, let me, let me ask you this first. Finish this sentence. Nice guys. Exactly. Donald Trump called Ben Carson a nice guy. Now, now, hold on. You're thinking Slater. Come on. I waited through the break for that. A nice guy? That's the worst thing he could have called Ben Carson. A nice guy. Why? 
Again, Donald Trump is running a business negotiation. Part of running a business negotiation is setting anchors. One anchor that Donald Trump has set is that he is the toughest negotiator in the world. And that's what our country needs right now, someone who is tough. This is the alpha warrior male persona that Donald Trump has been uh, creating his whole life, uh, but especially now. And I believe our country's thirsting for an alpha warrior male. Whether Donald Trump's the right guy or not, that's a different question. But an alpha warrior male is something that people are uh, just attracted to. So when he goes, because he set this anchor as the tough negotiator, when he goes to negotiate with China or Russia or with Iran, he's going to destroy them. He's going to win and he's going to destroy them. He's established the anchor as the tough guy. So who's Ben Carson? The nice guy. Watch out, China! Here comes our nice guy to do some negotiating. You better run! Nice guys finish last. Now, that's a sentence that actually has some interesting history to it, because the guy who said it actually never said that, uh, but we don't have time for that now. Point is, uh, when I say nice guy, the first thing that comes to everyone's mind is nice guys finish last. Whether they can articulate that or not, they know it. Nice guy is means you are weak. <laughs> that's it. means you're weak. Uh, talk to any girls on the dating scene, right? How many women have asked their friend, oh, how was your date last night? Well, he's, he's, he's nice, but maybe, maybe, maybe too nice. And that's the same thing that Trump said about Carly Fiorina in that Rolling Stone article. You know, he said, look at that face. Who would vote for that face? Can you imagine that the face of our next president? And people are like, oh my gosh, you're calling her ugly. And he said, no, 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 no. The next day, he said, I didn't call her ugly. I was calling her weak, basically. He was talking about her persona. In other words, she's weak. She's too nice. And that was the attack on Ben Carson. Slater Crusaders, got to run. Three hours flies by. Slater Radio on Twitter and the Mike Slater Show on Facebook. We can stay in touch all week long. Until then, we'll see you next Saturday. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network.